Well, good morning, Chapel family. I love that hymn. Amazing love and can it be that thou, my God, would die for me. I'm so thankful that there are wonderful songwriters today writing new hymns of the faith. But I'm also thankful for the heritage we have in the old ones, the great depth of theology. I love that last hymn. And uh, the verse that we didn't sing, uh, I think it's the third verse in the hymnal. It says, Along my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's plight. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose in the dungeon Filled with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. It's a testimony of God rescuing us out of the prison of sin. It is Abram's testimony as we are going through the life of Abraham here in the book of Genesis in chapter 13 today. I'd encourage you to turn there. But Abram was caught up in the in the dungeon of sin and pagan idolatry in the land of Ur when God called him, rescued him, pulled him out of Ur and said, come, follow me. And Abram rose, followed the Lord. And that's what we're looking at is his life, his journey of faith and following God's promise. And in so doing, as, as Abraham blazed the trail, the Scripture says he became our father in the faith. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are spiritual descendants of Abraham. His story, in a way, becomes our story. And as we are looking at his life, we're looking at a pattern of faith and things that we are to emulate and follow. Things that are explained in the New Testament are illustrated in the life of the patriarchs in the Old Testament. So that Genesis chapter 13 is our text today. I don't know about you all, but I um, I love summer and vacations. I hate to see summer go. I always get a little sick to my stomach when school starts because I, I hated that as a kid. I hated saying goodbye to summer and and uh, being you know being tied down to the drudgery of school. And I just have never outgrown that. So I feel for my my grandson when he has to go to school and and uh, all you kids who have to get up every morning and go to school. I just hurt for you. So sorry about that. Uh, sorry to bring it up since you have a whole day left before. Uh, but I remember uh, I enjoyed summer so much because we would do fun things as a family and sometimes we'd go on vacation and occasionally we would get a week or so of vacation and often my family, I grew up by the way in El Paso, Texas, out west Texas, farthest little tip west you can get in Texas and um, was there, lived there till I was in high school. But our family would pack up the Volkswagen van, yeah, we had one of those, and head off to the mountains of New Mexico, which I always wondered why we did that, because those Volkswagen vans, I think you could walk up the mountains faster than you could actually ride in the car. And uh, But it was fun, and, and uh, along the way we saw all kinds of interesting things back in those days, and I remember seeing some things like this, uh, Continental Divide, New Mexico, and, and then there were all the historical markers, and and I learned as a kid about this intriguing thing called the Continental Divide, stretching from the north to south along the Americas, along the, the Rocky Mountains. There's this, this magical little spot where if 
water that falls on this side of the magic little line goes to goes to the Gulf of Mexico and the, the Atlantic Ocean and, and water that falls on this side of the line goes to the Pacific Ocean. And I remember just as a kid just going, whoa, how cool is this? You know, you can spill your water over here and there it goes, you know, to the Atlantic and there it goes to the Pacific. And I'm still intrigued by that as an adult. And Well, as we come here to chapter 13 of Genesis, Abram has been the main character in in our look so far in chapter 12. But a new character comes into the scene. Actually, he's not a new character, but he's been in the background. But he comes right to center stage to grab our attention. He's going to be here for over much of the next six chapters. He's intertwined with Abram's story. He's mentioned, been mentioned simply before as Abram's nephew, Lot, who has been traveling along with him. But right now, he comes to the center stage, and this passage before us today is a watershed moment, much like the, like rain on the continental divide. This, they come together, and yet they, they come on the scene as a split. It's time they're going to have to part ways, and they will each take two very different paths, both geographically and spiritually. And they become for us, as, as Abraham is continuing as a pattern of, of faith living, of walking by faith, of following God's promise. Likewise, as Lot's story unfolds now, he becomes a, an illustration, a picture of life that is faithless. You see, he's a contrast to Abram. And there, we'll see their story grow and develop over the next few weeks. But we ended last week with verse 4 of chapter 13. As Abram and the whole entourage have returned from Egypt, they, they have come out of a disastrous thing there. We won't go back and, and tell the whole story. But they've returned and despite Abraham's bad choices and poor choices in going and handling things and deceiving Pharaoh and others there in Egypt. Despite all that, and because of God's great grace, and because of God's direct intervention, Abram has returned with his wife to the land of Canaan. They are all alive, and Abram is now even rich. He became wealthy in Egypt. And some of you may wonder, well, they're rich, just how rich are they? And that's a great question. Verse 2, and we read this last week, but I'll just look at verse 2. It says, Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and silver and gold. And that's, okay, he became very wealthy. But there's an idiom that's used here in the original language where it says here in English, very wealthy. It uses in Hebrew a different phrase that's more picturesque. And actually it it pictures something, a phrase that we use in English as well. If we could read the Hebrew and kind of translate it literally to English, it would say, and Abraham was very heavy in livestock and silver and gold. See, it's picturing that he's just weighted down with all this stuff. In English today, we would say it this way, he's loaded. And that's literally what they're saying. He's Filthy rich. 
Abram is not just comfortably well off now. He is loaded. So Abram is filthy rich. Lot has also apparently been well treated as we pick up from where we left off in, and we're in verse 5. It says, now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. How many? The, the land could not support them while they stayed together. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. So Lot had also acquired much wealth, probably down in Egypt with Abram. And now the two of them are so rich, they've got so much stuff, the land there in Canaan can't support them living together. There's not enough grazing land. There's not enough water. And so their herdsmen are fighting and competing with each other for the best pasture land and the, and the best water. It also mentions, if we go on, it says at the end there of verse, of verse 7, it says that the, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. It's a reminder that Abram and Lot, they don't own property here in Canaan. They are sojourning, they're passing through, they're camping out on borrowed ground. The folks who own the area where they are are the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And it's saying simply that they've, they've outgrown the space with each other, and as well, there's all the people around them who actually own the land who are saying, <clears throat> there's not enough land and room in this town for the both of us. Somebody's going to have to go. And so, we've got a problem. Brings up an important point, and I, well, before we go on in the story, I do want to point out a couple of observations about wealth. Some things we need to keep in mind about our wealth. And the first is this. It's understanding that wealth does not solve most problems. Most of us have a very hard time believing that. Because we really tend to think, if I just had another $1,000 or 2000 or $8,000 or $100,000 or whatever in my bank account, everything would be okay. If I just had a newer car or a new car or... You know, we fill in the blank. If I just had a little more, my problems would be over. I'd be happy. <laughs> I wouldn't need anything else, really. It would be just all right. We think that wealth would solve most of our problems. It would end the bickering and squabbling in our marriage. It would, you know, fix the problems of what are we going to do about, you know, Junior's teeth or whatever. But the reality is that Wealth, rather than solving most problems, wealth creates a whole host of problems of its own. You know, you know as well as I, that there are plenty of people who are incredibly rich, who are terribly miserable. I tend to think that the suicide rate is higher among the very rich than among the very poor. You see, people who have wealth, they have lots of problems. Once you get wealthy, there's a concern about losing the wealth that you've acquired. And so you start to worry, now that I've got all this wealth, how am I going to keep it? So I've got to, I've got to put an alarm system around my house to keep people from breaking in and stealing my stuff. 
and I've got to get a good safe to put my stuff. And, well, actually, home's not very secure, so I've got to put it in the safety deposit boxes in the bank. And, well, what if they fail? And so, you know, we're thinking of something else. And, you know, maybe my mattress, maybe not. Then a house could burn and, and if people break in. And, and so, well, I'm just going to start investing it. But then we got a problem. Where do I invest it? If I put it in the bank and put it just in the regular bank accounts or even CDs, they don't pay much interest and the rate of inflation is higher than what I get off my stuff. So I'm losing money even though I've saved it and put it in a safe place. So I'm going to put it in the stock market because then I can grow money. So that doesn't work. So then I get the one safe place because I know because I've been watching the commercials is I can buy gold. And I'll never lose money with gold. Mm, Well, that hasn't worked out too well this year, if you've been following. You see, just hanging on to it, it's tough. It's hard work to be enriched. And we all laugh and go, yeah, right. But more than that, we think it'll solve our problems, but often it leads to disputes and quarrels. See, we thought once we had the money, we wouldn't fight about it anymore. But now we have the money and we fight about how we're going to spend it. Because we have extra money and so I think I should have a new boat. And you think you should have a new kitchen. And what are we going to do? And so we're going to fight and or whatever. Leads to quarrels in marriages and families and churches. And if that's not enough, you see, you get all the stuff that comes along with all the money, you get all the possessions, and you got to deal with just hanging on to the and, and taking care of the stuff. You know, you bought a bigger house, then you found out that it takes a lot more work to clean three bathrooms than one. <laughs> and there's a lot more floor to vacuum, and there's a lot more clothes, there's a lot more laundry to do, and there's a lot more lawn to mow, and costs a lot more money to keep that lawnmower running because it's cutting so much more grass and and you're always working on it. And you, you know how hard it is to take care of the stuff. So many of the problems that you and I complain about and we deal with in our life are things that I like to call, at least I like to say to myself to remind me, these are the problems of the rich. So you wouldn't have to worry about car repair bills if we didn't have a car. And we're rich because we have a car. That's why Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, the sleep of the laborer is sweet. Whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich man permits him no sleep. Not only does it cause problems in all of those kinds of areas, there's another problem with wealth, and and it is that wealth can be a spiritual impediment. It can get in the way of people coming to faith in Christ. Wealth can actually keep people out of heaven. Jesus said it this way to the disciples. He said, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to get it to enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the more rich we are, the more we have, the more we tend to think that I can do it all myself. I can meet my own needs. I can take care of myself. I'm a self-made man and it's a lie from the pit of hell and it's a lie that will keep people out of heaven because they they will not trust in Christ. They don't think they need it. They don't think they need Him. Not only can it be a spiritual impediment keeping people away from faith in Christ, it can be a spiritual trap for those who know Christ, who have come to faith in Him. They can fall into the trap of materialism. So the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, he says, but those who desire to be rich 
He's talking about believers. They fall into a temptation, into a snare, in, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. So brothers and sisters, as much as some of us would like to get rich, we need to recognize that wealth creates problems and it's creating problems here for Abram and Lot. But there's a second thing I want us to see this morning about wealth, a reality from the pages of Scripture, and that's this, that our wealth is a test. Wealth not only creates problems, but the wealth that we have, whether we have lots and lots of wealth or whether we have just a little little bit of wealth, it is a test. Now some of you think, well, if I'm going to take the test of wealth, I'd like to take the test for big wealth, please. Go ahead, God, dump on me a couple of billion dollars right now. And, and let me take the big test. Because if you're going to fail, might as well fail big. <laughs> let me just point out very quickly that we're already enrolled in the big wealth test. We don't get that because we watch too much TV that shows us billionaires. <laughs> we don't watch enough that reminds us that there's not a person in this room who is not richer than at least half the people in the world. Because we are very rich. If that's not enough, I was reading a report from um, Oxfam not long ago and understood that really the majority of us in this room are far richer than we think. According to their report, if your house, your car, your savings, your IRA, your rings, your, you know, you take every bit of wealth you have, all of your net worth, and you add it all up, and if it adds up to more than $75,000, you are in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. You are richer than 90% of the people in the world. And that includes probably a majority of the folks here this morning. What that says is we are in the big test of wealth. Most of us don't think that because we're perhaps so loaded down with credit card debt. We've saved so little. We've spent so much on the on all the stuff that we don't have much in our bank accounts. And we have a lot of debt, but the reality is we are incredibly rich. But pastor, you're saying it's a test. Where do you get that from this text? Well, it's not from this text, but it is from what Jesus said. Luke chapter 16, Jesus is talking to the disciples and He says this, He says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with very much. So if you have not been trustworthy with in handling worldly wealth, then who will trust you with true riches? Now, a couple of big truths to unpack from that. The first is this. Understand that God is looking at how you and I deal with the wealth we have. 
to see how we handle it, to see if we handle it faithfully, to see if we handle it well. And on the basis of that, He is going to determine what He gives us later. The second big thing to notice is what the true riches are. Earthly wealth is not true riches. True riches have to do with the heavenly stuff, with the eternal stuff. And so, what He's saying is, wealth is a test. How do we handle it? What are we doing with it? Do do we own our wealth? Are we stewards of our wealth? Or does our wealth own us? Does our wealth or the desire we have for wealth corrupt us? Does it consume us? Do we squander our wealth or are we investing it? Are we not investing it in terms of getting more wealth in our bank accounts, but are we investing it for eternity, as Jesus said, don't lay up treasure on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. His point is that earthly wealth is, even the greatest of earthly wealth, isn't real riches. And if we use it well, then one day, God will entrust to us and give to us the good stuff. But we are so easily, every one of us, myself included, we are so enamored with, we're so caught up with, we're so starry-eyed over the the stuff that isn't worth anything. You know, I mean, we turn on the TV or we drive down the road, we drive past the sprawling mansions and we we see the, you know, the flashy cars and we see the yachts and we, we look at that stuff and we go, ooh, what if I could, you know, what if we had... And Jesus is saying, that's not the good stuff. And we just don't see that we are as short-sighted and as simple-minded as children. Little, little kids who if they were given piles of diamonds and gold and silver would gladly trade it for pieces of candy, little plastic, worthless toys, because they don't understand real wealth. Of course, you see, we don't either. We think the diamonds and the, and the silver and gold are the real wealth. And Jesus says, that's the play money. That's just to see how you do with what you got. Wow. Changes our perspective. Well, those are two realities about wealth. And that could be a whole sermon in itself and actually probably should have been. Secondly, we've got to move on in the story. Because the question is, what are Abraham and Lot going to do because they've got conflict in their life because of all this wealth? What are they going to do now? How are they going to handle the test? The story picks up. Verse 8. So Abraham said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between your herdsmen and mine because we are brothers. Abraham, faced with this issue, he has learned, he has grown from his time down in Egypt. And Abraham is learning to trust God. He took things in his own hand. He failed miserably. God in His grace brought him out of Egypt, kept him alive, restored his wife and and gave him additional fortune. And Abraham is realizing, hmm, I'm here by the grace of God. Maybe we better do things differently. And Abraham in handling this test, he demonstrates confident faith in God. And in that confident faith, I see three characteristics come out of Abraham. Three things that if you and I are trusting God, 
These will be some markers. They will be some things that show up in our life if we're trusting God. They are kind of natural consequences. First thing is, Abram, looking at this problem, instead of demanding his rights and looking how to take care of himself, Abram becomes a peacemaker. He says, hey Lot, let's not have any quarreling. You know what? Money is not as important here as family. We're brothers. Abram looks to bring peace to the situation. So should you and I, and so will you and I, if our attention is focused on Jesus Christ, if we're aiming to follow Him, we're going to be peacemakers. The Apostle Paul wrote to the the Ephesians and he said this, he said, make every effort to maintain or to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. You're going to have to make every effort of it because it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard in your home, in your marriage, in your family to be united and to have peace when you're dealing with anything, and especially here, money. We're going to have to work at it in the family of Christ, in the body of Christ. It's going to be tough. We need to make every effort to be peacemakers. It's necessary because we are family. He says, let's do this because we're brothers. It's necessary because of the testimony and witness that we should be having to the world around us. Again, Moses, as he pens this, has pointed out that the Canaanites and the Perizzites are in the land. God, when He called Abram, you recall back two weeks ago, as we look at the call, God says, come, follow me. And the second command is, be a blessing. That blessing is He is to be God's man, God's representative, God's messenger to those who do not know God. And He is supposed to be out there proclaiming the truth of who God is. You can't do that when you're bickering and fighting amongst one another. Folks will look at you and go, yeah, right. And may I say that's a big message for the church because far too often what the church is known for in the world out there is a bunch of folks who can't get along with each other and who bicker and fight where Jesus said, it's in this that you'll be known as my disciples, by, in that you love one another. If we're followers of Jesus Christ, we're going to be peacemakers. Now, and Jesus said, by the way, so there's some blessings that come with that. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. James writes in his little letter, he says, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So I ask you this morning, are you a peacemaker or are you the opposite, a troublemaker? You say, how do you tell the difference? I'd say let's look at, just go back and take a look at your conversations over the last two days. Think back honestly and analyze over the last two days what's been coming out of your, out of your mouth. How much time has there been arguing? How much time has there been griping? How much time being critical and complaining? How much time gossiping? Okay, I know we're all Christians here so we wouldn't gossip because that's wrong. Instead, what we do is we share about our problems with a confidential friend. Or we gossip, okay? 
How much time do we spend then talking with others, complaining to or about people or situations? They didn't do this. Can you believe they didn't do this? Oh, they did this. I can't believe they did that. (gasps) Or they should have, or they shouldn't have, or they... Can you believe what they said? See, things like that are the seeds of strife and trouble. If we find ourselves talking like that, We're sowing seeds of strife and trouble. We're troublemakers. Whereas those who are peacemakers are those who, I would say, ask these questions. How much time have you spent complimenting, encouraging, praising, taking note of the things that are good and then being thankful and appreciative for those things? Abram was a peacemaker. We should be too. For many of us, that was the whole sermon we needed right there. But there's more. Abram not only is a peacemaker, but apparently they're up on a high place as they're standing and Abram is called Lot and and they're able from this high place to look out all around over the land of Canaan. Verse 9. They looked out and Abram says, Is not the whole land before you? then let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. He says, Lot, look around. We need to separate because we're in each other's way. And Abram does what is totally unexpected and totally unnecessary. Abram does what is culturally out of place. See, in the culture, Abram is the elder He is the uncle. He is the head of the clan. Abram has the right to choose what needs to be done. He has the right to dictate, to bark out a few orders and say, Lot, we got a problem. Your herdsmen, your flocks are tripping over my herdsmen and my flocks. You need to get out of the way. I picked out a good spot for you. You head down that, you head down that southwest slope over there and you head out and you got some great land over there. Have a good time. See you later. That's what's normal and that's what he has the right to do. But he says here, Lot, look around. Abram puts himself under Lot. It's not clear in our English text where it says that it just begins in the NIV. He says, is not the whole land before you? He just starts right there. But in the Hebrew, there's an extra little word in there. And in some of your English translations, it'll show up and it's, he says, please, please, Lot. In Hebrew, it's actually, I pray you. I'm asking you, Lot, make a choice. He's humbling himself before Lot and saying, you get to pick first. I am putting my future in your hands. Wow. What Abram has just done is he has made himself a servant. Abram has been learning, I think, the all-important truth that in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. The way up is not fighting and clamoring to secure your own rights. The way up is not to look out for yourself. The way up is to give away your rights 
and to go down and to be the servant of all. And that is totally ridiculous and absurd unless you serve a sovereign God who says, follow me into a path of servanthood. Which is what our God has called us to do. So the Scripture says in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. It goes on and says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who, and it goes on describing the humility of Christ and how He humbled Himself for our sake. And so as those who are going to follow Him, we follow in His footsteps and we put ourselves un- under others and say, put their interests ahead of ours. How many of you is that natural for? I thought so. Not for me either. Jesus said, Luke chapter 22, you're not to be like that, like the unbelievers who are fighting to get ahead, but instead the greatest among you should be like your youngest and like the one who rules, like the one who serves. The world's methodology is getting ahead by looking out for yourself and pushing ahead, but it's not God's way. God's way of getting ahead is following God in faith. It's looking up to number one, not looking out for number one, me, but looking up to number one who is God and following Him who has called for us to serve and be a blessing to others. Third thing that I see about Abram as one who is following God in faith, in confident faith, and it shows up in how he treats Abram here. Not only is he a peacemaker and a servant, but thirdly, I look here in again in verse 9, and I realize that Abram is generous. Far above not only what is, is normal, but even far above that, who did God promise the land to? Abram. It wasn't Lot's land, it's Abram's. And yet, Abram says, Lot, whatever you want. God had called Abram to be a blessing, and so Abram's applying that even at home with family. And his generosity isn't just offering Lot a choice of, well, you can go to the southwest over there, or how about the northwest over here? He's saying, Lot, anything you want. You go first. Anything you want. It's like Jesus called for us to do in the Sermon on the Mount where He encourages us to go beyond what is required, to go beyond what is necessary. Literally, He says there, we're to go the extra mile. If one of those hated Romans compels you, which they could do by law, to carry their burden for a mile because they don't want to carry it, say, hey, you, come here, carry this. He says, carry it two miles. Who does that? God. Who does He expect to do that? Us. Again, it's not natural. He says He commands those, Paul tells Timothy, command those to do good. The folks in the church who are rich, He says, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. So that caused this pastor and author Keith Krell, to write these words. He says, People who truly believe God's promises of provision can be generous with their possessions. You don't have to be worried about losing it if others are blessed. So be generous. Help others succeed. God will see that kind of Christ-like faith, and you'll be rewarded. 
That's Abraham. Very quickly, we look very at Lot and see what Lot did. Lot's the contrast. He's the opposite of Abram. Lot is put there. Abram brings him up says, hey, look, choose, choose a way to go. What does Lot do? He focuses on the physical. While Abram is in confident faith, Lot is faithless living. He is one who, as a, he's a believer in God, but he is not living in faith. He is not following in faith. And he puts his focus on the physical. He, all he sees when he looks out, verse 10, he says, he looked up and he saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered. It's like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot looks up and he, he looks around and he looks over to the, the southwest and it's just dry and brown. And he looks over out to the west and it's dry and brown. He looks over to the northeast and it's dry and brown. He looks to the north, it's dry and brown. And, and he looks and, and he, as he starts looking east, he starts seeing this beautiful green lush area. The Valley of the Jordan. That's all he sees. Wow, that's beautiful. It's like the garden of the Lord, like the garden of Eden. It's even like Egypt. See, he's saying that, uh, I think the hint is that back when Lot was in Egypt, he kind of fell in love with Egypt. He really wanted to stay there, but, uh, well, Abe got kicked out of Egypt. And even at that, God didn't want him to stay there. God wanted him to be in Canaan. Lot sees that and he goes, I found my home. His focus is on the physical and his concern is personal. He chose for himself. He's only concerned about himself. He's not concerned about his uncle. His uncle, uncle Abram took him in when he, when his dad died. Abe raised Lot as his own son. He has followed him from Ur to Haran, now to Canaan, to Egypt, back and and Abram said, now says, anything you want, any direction you want to go, you go. And what does Lot do? He looks at that and it says, verse 11, which says, so Lot chose for himself. That was his consideration, him. He chose for himself, it goes on to say, that the whole plain of the Jordan, not just part of it, the whole thing, See, the fair thing to be would be you go look around and see that everything else is brown, probably still recovering from the drought that they had had. And now you see this lush valley. And the fair thing would be to say, wow, Abram, what a generous offer. You know, you've been so good to me all my life. If I wanted to be generous, I'd just say, Abram, you take this. I'll go out here in the desert over here. But if we want to just be fair about it, let's split it down the middle. There's a river running down the middle of the valley. I'll take the far side. I'll go east to take the far side. You stay here. You take this side. We can each have the desert parts on the opposite, you know, away from it. And we've all got the, the green area here. But no, he says take the whole thing. He's selfish. So it is faithless living focuses on the physical and faithless living is selfish and self-centered. Faithless living has a heart for the world. We find as we go on in the story here that, that Abraham isn't just enamored with the, the lush and green stuff out there. He's also, you see, it says he chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and he set out to the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, dusty Canaan, while Lot lived, get this, 
among the cities of the plain and pitched his tent near Sodom. Lot didn't have to live near the cities. There's a lot of space down there in this valley that's not near the cities. But he goes and puts his tent, he goes and moves in near the cities and places his, or among the cities and places his tent near Sodom. Why does he do that? Because I think he got excited down in Egypt where they lived in the, all the suburban culture and all the wealth and all the, the sophistication of Egypt and that's attractive. And you see these cities in the plain, they are well populated, they are rich, they are centered right along the, the major trade route through the area and he's going, hey, culturally, economically, that's the place to be. There's tons of business opportunities there in the plain. Now, keep going, he says, now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Okay, there's some rotten stuff going on. This is Sin City. It's Vegas of the day. But I'm not going to go live in the city. I'm just going to go be by there because I want the stuff. Now, I'm reading stuff into the text, but I think it's true to the text. That's faithless living. It's a watershed moment for Lot. We're going to see more of his story develop in the chapters ahead. He's at the top of this continental divide and he's making a choice and he has no idea the consequences that are going to come. So what now though? We're at the end of this chapter, the end of this section. There's actually one more little bit left. But I wonder what's happened. If you and I are dealing with somebody like Lot, what do we do? Are we really supposed to be folks who are, who seek peace with such folks, who, who make ourselves servants to them, who, who deal generously? Because won't we get walked on? Won't we get taken advantage of? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. Lot went off and lived in the cities of the plain in the lush valley, and Abram goes off to dusty Canaan. And if the story ended right there, we would think that Lot just won. Abraham loses, but there's something else. Verse 14. The Lord God speaks to Abram. After Lot had parted, he says, lift up your eyes. Abram, look up. Look around. Do a 360, buddy. Look to the north, to the south. Look to the east and to the west. Everything you see will be yours. God goes and reiterates to Abraham right now the promises that he's already made. But significantly, and as he will do as he continues through the story to remind Abram of the promises, he adds to it. He says, I give it to you and your descendants forever. He's never said that before. just said to your descendants, now it's forever. And by the way, Abram, I know I've talked about descendants and um, your, your wife still doesn't have any kids. But look here around around you. There's all this dust in Canaan. Look at what he says. He says, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring, verse 16, like the dust of the earth. So that if anyone could count the dust, your offspring could also be counted. You're going to have offspring, but I'm telling you now, the offspring is uncountable. Big words for somebody with no kids. Lastly, he says, now, Abram, go walk through the land. Walk through the land and check it out. 
because I'm going to give it all to you. And so Abraham does. He says he, he gets up, he picks up his tents and he goes and travels and he makes his way down and ends up in, by the trees of Mamre at Hebron where he builds an altar to the Lord. He walks the land, now he settles in a place. It's not as nice as the lush valleys of the plain, but it is a, still a very nice place. Even today, the area around Hebron, very nice area. So I hear. Again, though, Abraham's still not in the best spot. Did Lot win? Remember this, Lot has the land, but Abram has the Lord. These last verses made all the difference. Whenever you have the Lord with you, nothing else matters. I recently read some words from Bishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa. I don't support everything he's ever done or agree with everything he's ever said, but when I read these words, I said, this guy nailed something that goes along with this passage. He said this, he said, when the white man came to Africa, we had the land and he had the Bible. Now we have the Bible and he has the land. True words. We shall see who got the better deal. See, he's speaking in faith, saying it's better to have the Lord, better to have the Bible and to know the Lord than to have the land. That is the message of this passage. That is the faith, the confident faith of Abram, which we should all be clinging to as well, to understand that when we have Jesus, we have everything. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this encouragement today. Because the reality is that we often tend to get our priorities in the wrong spot. We tend to fall in love with the stuff with the play money, the playthings that don't really count. We often get put in situations where we are have been taken advantage of, where we find ourselves in strife and difficulty over things that really don't matter. It's easy for us to start to trust in ourselves, to come up with our own ways to fight things and to push for our agenda, to fight for our stuff and our rights. When you call for us to trust you, you call for us in your word to be peacemakers, to be servants. You call for us to be those who live out our faith Those who, who do not cling to the worthless idols of this world, but we're generous with all of that that you have entrusted to us. In so doing, we point people to Jesus. And we look forward to the day when we will be entrusted with real wealth. So, Lord, I pray that You would help us to follow Abram's example. To be less like Lot, because probably most of us very often feel like Lot's. So, to this end, we commit ourselves and we ask Your blessing. 
In Jesus' name, amen.